0: Amen. Well, you can be seated. Welcome. What an awesome thing that we have before us, church. What a great time we get to have right now uh, to open up the Word of God together to get ready. Um, So get ready, because we got a moment before us, don't we? Listen, how awesome it is just to be here, Uh, just to sit to soak up God's revelation to us, just to be present, to be here, to not look anywhere else that we need to be or anything else that we need to do and just be with the Lord, to be present with the Lord. So I wanna encourage you. I wanna encourage you, enjoy this. Sit and enjoy his word. Enjoy sweet, savory fellowship with the Lord, that you have time with God right now to walk through his word. So let's open up the book, right? The book that we walk through together. If you have your Bibles, let's open up together to Luke chapter six, verses one through five. Luke chapter six, verses one through five. We're in chapter six of Luke. Church, can we uh, celebrate that? Okay, we're making our way through. And listen, if you're new here, this is what we do. We're gonna walk through the text, um, and we're gonna look to it and learn from it. Um, And so I'd love for you to keep your text open, the Bible open before you. And as you're turning there, listen, Pastor Lonnie has set us up so, so perfectly. Uh, I'm so thankful for him. Aren't you guys thankful for Pastor Lonnie? Where is he at? Um, I heard he tore the house down last week. And I'm so thankful for God, how God is using him, how God has used him, how God is going to use him. Um, we hit up the one-two punch right up here, and uh, I'll give him one, and you give him two punches. All right, Lonnie. And so, um, and the others that have delivered God's word for us, Pastor Chad, Josh, Dakota, give them a round of applause. Um, Yes, thank you. And as we move in today, again, Pastor Lonnie, listen, set us up perfectly. As we've seen so far in the book of Luke, here's what's happening. There's been testimony after testimony of the witnesses of who Jesus is, and Jesus himself also through his ministry showing who he is, the Son of God. And which, of course, listen, this must be believed, and this is utmost importance, this is the whole reason why Jesus came, to show who he was as the Son of God, and this must be believed in for salvation. This is why Jesus came, to show himself to be God, coming fully as a man to die for sins that whoever would believe in this man, this God-man Jesus Christ, would see receive eternal life. This is the point of the Gospels. This is the point of all of them. Listen, John tells us it plainly in John 20, verse 31. Look at this up on the screen. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. And throughout all of this, especially in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is making this clear, right? You, You understand? You see this? He's making this clear. I'm the son of God. This is what I've come to do. I've come to save your souls and so believe in me and receive salvation. But listen, all throughout this, although he is showing this clearly, there are many people who still don't believe. There are many people here, specifically the Jewish people, who he's specifically ministering to and even more specifically who don't believe are the self-righteous pharisees you guys know about them The self-righteous Pharisees. Listen, this is what's happening here. You see, even though Jesus had begun when he had begun his ministry, he was popular. Even though he was well-received, even though in the beginning people had received him well and wanted to follow him and thought Jesus was wonderful, and I want that. I want him. I want to, to, to see what he has to say. I want to follow him. Already, even in the short time of him starting his public ministry, there's been great hostility. There's now a rising great hostility. You see, the Pharisees, what they're doing is they're hating. They're talking. They're trying to trap. They're criticizing, right? Haters going hate. And the Pharisees are the chief haters, okay? That's what's happening here. And listen, the reason for their hate is because Jesus is completely undermining their self-righteous Judaism. He's completely undermining it. I mean, what he is doing is he is obliterating everything that the Pharisees have, stand, have stood upon um, for all of these years. He, he is knocking it out. He is obliterating it. He's demolishing it. Everything that they stand on. See, this was a blow to something they had built their whole life upon. The Pharisees believed that their eternity and God receiving them would rest upon them earning their way towards God with keeping of certain works. If their good works would outweigh their bad works, God would receive them and they would have salvation. That's what they believe. Right, that's how they thought. And originally this was founded on the law of them keeping the law, but then this was added to. And they thought they were so good. Listen, they thought that they were so good, right? Like, here, give me the law of God. Okay, I'm keeping that so perfectly. Let me just, like, add laws to this law in order to make sure everyone knows that I can keep the law and I can be right in God's sight through my works. Like, you know those people who, like, love Christmas so much, like, they get like, wreaths on wreaths. You know what I mean? Like it looks like when you go to their house like they vom- Christmas just like vomited uh, and, and that like turned into the decorations. Listen, these these Pharisees loved the laws, loved the rules, loved the regulations so much. They had laws on laws. Right? Like they're keeping so many laws in order to try to show that they were right before God, that they were good, that they had kept the law so perfectly that they would increase the rules to ensure that they were blameless and that they would be seen as blameless. Listen, and this keeping the rules, this, this, uh, uh, this determined their social status, their religious status, and their status before God. This status was their way of life. They had built their whole life upon it. And this was just also to bring glory to themselves. Listen, the religion that they had kept was mainly to bring also glory to themselves in addition to earning the right standing with God. That's why Paul needed to say this about keeping the law, Galatians six fourteen through 16. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ because these religious leaders had been boasting in everything other than what Jesus had claimed to do on the cross. By which the world has been crucified to me, Paul says, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, this new creation, by the cross of Christ, this rule brings peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Listen, the Pharisees attempted to hold to the law for salvation. More than that, they created additional rules, rules on rules on rules, on biblical rules to attempt to earn salvation. And here's what Jesus is coming to do in his ministry. He's coming to demolish all of it. I mean, he's demolishing all of it, right? The lion and the lamb, he ain't messing around here. He's coming to to bring this thing to a close, and this really began to become apparent in chapter five of Luke that we saw in verse 20. Listen, when Jesus, remember this, tells the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven. They're like, wait a second. Right, I thought you, you, this is the way in which we could become in right standing with God. We're going to earn this thing by our works, by doing good enough. And Jesus comes in and starts telling people that their sins are forgiven. The Pharisees thought, who is this man that claims to be able to forgive sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus says, exactly. I'm God. I'm the son of God. Believe in me and don't trust in your works or your self-righteous religion to earn your right standing with God. Believe in me as the son of God and so receive salvation. But Jesus goes further from there. In chapter five, verse 32, what we see is he shows whose sins he had come to forgive. And this is staggering. He had come to forgive sins and now whose sins is he going to forgive? His ministry, what the Pharisees learned, wasn't aimed towards the self-righteous religious leaders. His aim towards the people who had knew that they had sinned was the point for which he came. He came to call sinners, the people who knew that they were unrighteous, who knew that they couldn't keep the law, who knew that they wouldn't be good enough by their own standard. Luke 5, 32, this is what Jesus says, I've come to call the righteous, I've not come to call the righteous, right? But the sinners to repentance. And so this was absolute heresy in the Pharisee eyes, heresy for the Pharisee, right? They were the deserving ones. How dare this man claim to be God and how dare he say that God would save such scum, sinners. Jesus had turned a corner. He was healing, he was teaching, but they were beginning to understand that Jesus was saying this, I'm not in line with you, Pharisees. I don't believe the same thing as you. We're not on the same page. I'm not about trusting in rules and regulations for salvation. I've come to save, I have come to bring mercy through my gospel, because you can't earn your salvation, you need a savior, and I am he, I am the anointed Messiah, and this, as Pastor Lonnie said last week, is the new way. This is the new way. They might have thought that Jesus was under the authority of their religion, but Jesus is showing that he is not. Listen, what Jesus came to do, listen, this is important, is that he didn't come to add on to their works-based righteousness. Like, he didn't come to verify it. He's not an appendix to Judaism. He's doing something new. He's the son of God who came to completely show that Judaism is completely incompatible with what he came to do, the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lonnie hit the nail on the head. Jesus is doing something new, and the religious elitists wouldn't have anything to do with it so he shows he's come to forgive sin he's come to forgive the sins of the sinner he makes it clear explicit and then Jesus is showing as the passage saw uh, tells us last week that this is a new way it's a new garment it's new wine it doesn't mix with the old way Jesus is showing that he is completely incompatible his way is completely incompatible with the old and listen church this is important for you This is important for us we can't mix trusting in self-righteousness to earn our way towards right standing with god and a savior at the same time we have to choose jesus listen he would have been the most intolerant religious leader that anyone ever saw he is See, like, what he was doing here, he didn't say, like, listen, okay, I know, Pharisees, you're trying to do good, like, you guys are doing a lot of good things, right? Like, like I know you're trying, and so what we should do, like, let's just mix together, let's join our voice forces, like, let's combine for the greater good, right? And then we'll, like, figure out a, a way that's compatible for both. Jesus didn't have any of that. He completely came to demolish all the things that they had stood on. Why? Because eternity's at stake. People's eternities are at stake. This is a new way. Jesus is unique. He's different. The Pharisees see this and they're upset. But listen, he drives this deeper because people's eternities at stake. And so this is what he's saying to us. And he's calling us as a people to trust not in self-based righteousness, not works-based religion, not a way to earn our salvation. And if you're a Christian, not to even live in such a way in which your works keep you in right standing with God but to trust wholly upon, lean wholly upon, completely upon a savior. So in today's passage, listen, Jesus is gonna drive this deeper because what Jesus is essentially doing here is he's forcing people to choose. Choose between works-based religion, self-righteousness, or him as a savior. He's drawing a line in the sand. Will you choose the gospel message? Will you choose the good news of Christ to replace your notion of earning salvation? Will you believe that he's the son of God? Will you believe in what he came to do? Will you see your need for a savior? Will you understand that God is after your heart, not your works? Will you base your salvation on mercy and compassion and love, not earning away? Will you believe that he is the Lord and so receive eternal life? This is what Jesus is doing. And last week, listen, he used fasting as a launching pad to draw this out. This week, he's going to show the same thing. This is a new way, but he's going to use the Sabbath. And as silly as this sounds, before we get into it, this is what he's essentially forcing them to choose between. Will you trust, me, trust the Sabbath or will you trust me as Savior? And this is not silly because, listen, the Sabbath was a foundational piece for the Pharisees earning their salvation. It was a a foundational piece to them earning their righteousness. And so I think this sets us up perfectly. As we pray and as we read the word, listen, here's what I want us to think for. It sets us up perfectly. To choose either mere religion, right, condemning man-made unbiblical rules and effort to be accepted by God, to try to earn our salvation through religious activity, popularity, and acceptance, or to look to a Savior who loves us and came to die for our sins to bring mercy a new way and to call us into relationship with him. I'm not sure where you are, but would you consider that there must be a choice? Would you consider that there must be a choice? Self-righteousness and trusting in a savior can't coexist. They're inharmonious. They conflict. And so ask yourself, am I trusting in my works to make me right before God? Or my I trusting in a savior? This is for the non-Christian and the Christian. Christian, I know maybe you have decided at some point in your life to trust in Jesus for salvation, but maybe you functionally live like your works keep you in right standing with God. One day when you do well, God is pleased, and the other day when you don't, he's not. My encouragement to even you would be to wholly throw yourself upon a savior, trusting in him day by day, the salvation and the right standing that you have so listen we got to pray let's pray and the only goal today is that you you and i would wholly lean upon a savior for our right standing with god and not upon our works our self-righteousness let's pray that god would accomplish this father we come before you today and god this is so so important for us god we know that in your word through this book you have done incredible things. You have done things that, that are unexplainable, showing yourself to be the son of God. And God, when you show yourself, we believe and we see that you indeed are God and that you have come to save and we trust in you for salvation. And God, I pray that everyone in this room today would trust in you for salvation. That they would believe in you, wholly lean upon you, throw themselves upon you as a savior who brings a new way, new wine, a new garment, compassion, mercy, and that we would trust in you and not our works for salvation, but God, that even those who have done that, God, that we would live in such a way that we are dependent upon the mercy and the right standing that we receive from you, Jesus, and not our works as we even live every day for you. God, I pray that you would show us today how great a savior you are, that you came to save sinners and that we would trust completely in you. Father, I know that that this almost seems silly that a, a, a people would trust in a Sabbath, a work to earn their salvation instead of a savior who came to save, but God, we do the same thing. We trust in many works. And God, I pray that today we would see that you have called us to trust in a savior and not self-righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read this. Chapter six, starting in verse one. Hopefully you already have it open. Ready? On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now I know this might be hard to understand at first, and we're gonna walk through it and explain to you incredible passage, so much that we're gonna see in five short verses, right? So time to fall in love with the text, eyes on the text. Through this simple story, right, Jesus is is showing us his new way and moving us to choose between self-righteousness or a savior. And this is what we're going to see in this story. Now, let me tell you and kind of warn you at first, okay? So here's what happens when you teach the Bible, right? Like, what we need to do is pursue the tone of the text, Okay, so like when I wake up in the morning and I'm about to teach the Bible, right, for, for you on a Sunday morning, and I wake up and I'm like in a happy mood, I say like, okay, I'm just gonna teach happy, right? Because I'm happy, things are going well, and one day the next week when I wake up like really upset and things are kind of going real mad, I'm like, I'm just gonna preach angry today. You have no idea how angry I'm about to preach, okay? Like, it can't work like that, right? So what tone do we pursue while we're teaching the Bible? Well, we pursue the tone of the text. The text dictates everything. And so now as we pursue this tone, I will tell you this is not like the nicest tone, okay? As we're reading, this, this is why this is serious matter. You've probably sensed it already as we've started. This is serious. Jesus is speaking seriously because eternities are at stake. And so if this feels like it's right up in your face, it's because it is. And Jesus is going to change us through. So we're gonna walk through this storyline. The storyline builds upon itself and so we're gonna walk through it. The first thing that we see in this storyline is the action. This first simple action. Verse one, it says, now on the Sabbath. Now I don't know what you know about the Sabbath but as we come across this, it's important to know what's going on. In Judaism, the Sabbath was critical, very critical. The observance of the Sabbath from Friday sundown To Saturday sundown, the Jews were to keep the Sabbath, and this was a matter of earning your salvation. If you kept all the rules and the regulations of the Sabbath, you deserved and you earned and you received righteousness. Now the Sabbath wasn't merely observing the day, it was also observing a collection of rules on that day. The collection of rules consisted of years and years and years and years of accumulated rules that the Pharisees would give in addition to the rules that already existed. Rules on rules, remember? Because of all of these additions, listen, all of these added things by the rabbis, this day was not fun, okay? Like this day was not a happy day, or a restful day, or a recreational day, or a worshipful day. This was a torturous day. This day was torture, it was brutal, it was authoritarian, it was oppressive, and it wasn't supposed to be this way. The word Sabbath, as we look at this, this it's only the third word in our text, but as we look at this, it it comes from the Greek word means to cease, that's where Sabbath comes from, ready? To cease, to stop, the emphasis, of the spelling of it means to like wholly cease, like completely, fully cease. Now the Sabbath, as many of you know, was inaugurated in the ten. Commandments, that's where it came from back in Exodus 20. Listen, this is what it means. The Sabbath literally just means to cease and this is where it came from. Exodus 20, eight through 11. This is where we, we see this come to pass in the scriptures. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. There's, there it is. And on it you shall, what's the, what's the requirement, ready? To do not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner or anybody else you could think of who is with you within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so what's interesting about this is this is all it says. This is all it says about the Sabbath. That's it. No more all over the Bible, where the Sabbath is mentioned. This is the command right here, simple. This is what God said. It's as simple as it seems. Don't work. Don't do any labor. Don't do anything. Don't do any work at all. This is as simple as it gets. This is the command. What you see right here is the command. Keep the Sabbath, don't do any work. It seems simple, right? Have a day off. Rest. Refresh. Retreat. Have restoration. Recreation. And let it be worshipful. Why? To know that he's God. Right? When we take the day off, it shows that we know that God's not taking the day off. And we trust that God is still in control and he's still upholding the universe. This is what the Sabbath was meant to show. Look at it, Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I'm the Lord, that I sanctify you. Sanctify, what does that mean? To grow you into more and more and more like God himself as God aims to do, right? He's the one who sanctifies. So when you take Sabbath rest, it displays that He is the one doing the work right? By doing this, listen, we are aware and we show our trust in that is the Lord that does the work. He builds the house. He sanctifies us. We don't have to worry that if we release control, that even of our own sanctification, we release control, that God will release control. And this is good for us to note. Side note, listen, many of us grapple for control, even in our spiritual growth. And it's good to be zealous, but it's not good to live like it depends on us, right? It's okay. If you're in Christ, listen, God will continue to grow you. It's okay. He's in control. And this is what the Sabbath aims to do. And just as you seek to know him and to follow him, listen, sometimes it's more God honoring just to look to him and just receive the work that he's doing in your life. Sometimes you need rest. It's okay to want to be like God, but it's not okay to want to be God in control of all things. So even when it comes to you wanting to grow spiritually, he does the work, right? And don't worry. Like, if you're in Christ, he's going to do the work. Okay, like he's not going to stop. So Paul knew this truth about God's promises, about that he was the one who was going to continue to grow us. Look, it says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus. So listen, what, what you need to know is if you are in Christ and even though you want to grow and you are zealous for it, it's okay to show that God is in control, that you are not. You, you are not the one doing the work, God is. So the Sabbath was made to demonstrate trusting this. Ezekiel twenty twelve says the same thing, look at it. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies. I'm the one who's doing the work. And keeping the Sabbath was serious. I mean, you gotta check this out, look at this. You are to speak to the people of Israel, Exodus 31, 12 through 17 and say, above all, this is how important it is, like circle that when you find it in your Bible, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you might know that I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it, look at how serious it is, shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that's the only requirement, that you don't do work, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall work uh, Work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, that day he shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What we see is that this is serious, but it's serious for the enjoyment of God's people rest, to receive refreshment from the Lord. That was the point of the Sabbath, and there was no more details about it, don't work. It was to be still and to know that he's God, and therefore that we are flesh and we are not God, and therefore we need rest and refreshment. We need to be sustained by him. So listen, the Sabbath, retreat, refreshment, restoration, Recreation, for us, worship, instituted for our good. Even in Mark's account of the same exact story, look at it. He says, the Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. The Sabbath was simple. It was meant to be for good, not to be Lord over us. Even at the end of our passage, listen, Jesus says this, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, right? He says that at the end, we just read that, meaning this, the Sabbath is not your Lord. It doesn't declare you righteous, I do. Keeping the Sabbath regulations and adding to the rules can't save you, I can. I'm above the Sabbath and your rules. Don't look to it, look to me. Don't look to self-righteousness, look to me. It's meant for rest, not to save you. That's a true interpretation of the Sabbath. It's not meant to be filled with unbiblical rules, which they filled it with to earn your self-righteousness. It's meant for a day of rest, just very simple. This day was meant for enjoyment, like listen, ready? Like literal enjoyment, go, play, Go to the beach, sleep, right? Any of you know that, what it means to sleep? Many of you don't. Spend extended time with God and your family. And so all over the Bible, when it comes to the Sabbath, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm driving this home because it needs to be driven home. All over the Bible. When it comes to the Sabbath, it says simply, don't work." So what's interesting here is that the Pharisees and the religion, Judaism, was so much about works and not about heart, so insincere and so shallow, so focusing on external works only that they started to fill this day up. They started to fill up this day with rules and regulations to earn their salvation, all of which are unbiblical. And listen, side note, isn't that what we do? Listen, even if it's not malicious, which I think many of the Pharisees' attitude was, we begin to add our own rules and regulations for our own lives, even in God's commands. Listen, super discipline, routine, goal-oriented, structure for everything, good, but then we begin to walk around like they've earned us some greater right standing before God. And if we keep them perfectly one day, we think God is pleased. And if we don't, We think he's displeased. And I'm not talking about biblical commands. I'm talking about our own. But listen, this is what we do. We start adding uh, adding to the word of God, adding to what God requires of us, and we begin to live as though they make our right standing with God what it is. And so not trusting in a Savior. So listen, what kind of rules was the Sabbath filled with? Like I would love for you to go and research this and understand what kind of rules this day was filled with because your jaw would drop. I mean, you'd be so shocked that you like, you wouldn't even believe that it's true. Anything and everything that you could imagine, listen, restrictions on how far you could go from home, what you could do in public, what you could do in private, what you could lift, what you couldn't lift, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, and this. Uh, the Jewish book, the Talmud, there's 24 chapters of Sabbath requirements, 24 chapters of Sabbath requirements. And each chapter is, and its complexity is staggering. Like they couldn't even understand all the rules and the regulations that they made up. Just a couple of examples are this, you couldn't carry anything on you that weighed more than a dry fig on the Sabbath, right? You couldn't carry anything resembling your tool of trade. So if you were a seamstress, you couldn't carry your needle. If you were a student, you couldn't carry a book, right? This is how it came into being. This is what would happen. This was the requirements of the Sabbath, all of which started when God said, take a Sabbath to rest and retreat and have recreation and enjoyment and know that I am God. And now this day is filled. How does this come into pass? How does this happen? How does this come into being? Well, here's what happens. Self-righteousness happens. Hearts that flow with wanting to earn their right standing before God. Listen, when we try to earn our way to God, we will make up the standards by which we live. And we will also place them on everybody else around us. That's the definition of legalism. That you create the standards by which we have right standing before God, and then you place them on everybody told you this wasn't going to be delightful. But this is what is happening here. This is the truth that's happening in this text. So back to the text. This is their self-righteous view of the Sabbath, and if you only knew the depth of the intricacies of the unbiblical regulations, your jaw would drop. Too many to describe to you today. So verse one, on the Sabbath day, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked, look at it, and says it, they ate some grain. Now, if you need to, you, you need to know about this. It's important that we know all of this background because what's happened here is they're plucking grain as they're walking through the grain fields. It's the Sabbath. We've determined what's been happening on the Sabbath, what the requirements are of the Sabbath, what the Jews were looking to for the Sabbath and what God originally said. But now they're walking through this grain field and what they're doing is they're plucking grain, which, by the way, is not forbidden. This is a simple uh, allowance by God. Actually, this is a wonderful, gracious, permissible thing to happen. Listen, here's what happened. When people travel. Okay, there was no cars, no street coaches. I don't know if you guys know that in these times, right? No stoplights, no on ramps, no exit ramps. People did something that we don't do often, it's called walk, right? That's what they did. They walked from place to place. They were probably in a lot better shape than than us, right? And God gave this gracious gift to people. Here's what it was As you were walking, you were permitted to take a handful of grain, rub it between your fingers, loft the chaff up in the air, and eat. While you're walking in your field that is not your field, right? In a field that's not your own. And as you're walking and you're taking this, right, because there's no distinguished roads, sometimes you'd go down paths, and other times you find yourself in grain fields. You can take some of this grain. Now listen, you can't harvest it, right? Like you can't like start to like pull it, put it in a sack, sell it, make money off, like, but you can grab some food on your way while you're walking, right? The same thing for vineyards. And we see this in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 through 25. Check it out. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. Like. I would say, God, you shouldn't throw in as many as you wish into that verse, right? Because, like, I'm just going to eat a bunch. But He does. That's how gracious He is. He says, "If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put any in your sickle. Uh, put a sickle to to your neighbor's standing grain. Like you can't harvest it. So listen, on this day meant for refreshment, nothing but simple. Don't work. Jesus and his followers are walking, not doing anything sinful, enjoying the refreshment that God permitted them to enjoy from the grain field. And this is what is happening, only. And so what we see here, just in this simple first point, because this story has got to build upon itself, is that as these Pharisees are about to accuse, we see that everything that they're doing right now is permitted by God, but they are about to be accused of something that's not. And what we see is self-righteousness is not based upon any truth at all from God's word. Self-righteousness is not based upon any truth. It's based upon man-made regulation and religion. And so what these men, Jesus himself, are doing is permissible But they're about to be accused. So the first thing that we see is the action. The second thing that we see in our story is the accusation. The second thing we see in the story, now this is building. The point is at the end, is the accusation. Verse 2, we start to see this accusation. We know what they're doing. We know what's happening. We understand the Sabbath. We understand that they're eating, plucking grain as they walk. Now here's what happens in verse two. They weren't doing anything wrong. The Sabbath was meant to be a light delights, but the rules that the Pharisees had made up were elaborate and repressive. So here is what happens. Specifically, the Pharisees were probably accusing them in this verse of reaping, threshing, winnowing, preparing food, right, by just taking some grain and eating it. And the Pharisees said this, why are you, so apparent, listen, they tell Jesus, why are you? So in the first verse, we see that the disciples were plucking grain, but here he says, why are you, plural, so apparently Jesus was plucking grain as well, his, and him and his disciples both, right? Jesus showing his humanity, right? Like he liked snacks too. Like Jesus enjoyed the snacks along the way just as much as, as the disciples did. He's showing his humanity here. So they're all plucking this grain as they're walking. And they said this. Here's what the Pharisees said. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And here's what they're essentially saying is, why, Jesus, are you so disrespectful? Why are you not holding to? Why are you not holding up? Why are you not keeping up with? Why are you not commanding what is in line with Judaism? And Jesus is about to once again show that his way is completely different. He's not holding it up because what he is doing is a new way. It's a new wine. It's a new garment. It's forgiveness. It's for sinners. It's going to completely replace Judaism and the old way of keeping the law, but even more so the unbiblical requirements that the Pharisees hold to. He is going to obliterate it. This is not compatible. He's not going to mix this. There's no syncretism happening here. You see, the reason why Jesus aimed to obliterate this and not even show any signs of remorse, right? Like if Jesus was a teacher in this day, like there would be very, few people that went to his church, right? Because he's speaking the truth, and the truth is separating. And what he's saying here is he's showing no signs of remorse, and the reason why is because there's eternal significance behind these Pharisees' accusations. Listen, there is eternal significance behind trusting in self-righteousness to earn right standing before God. Behind their regulations was a trust and an unbiblical earning their own way to salvation. And it would not lead to salvation. So Jesus is going to take the opportunity to show that he's ushering in a completely new way. A completely new way. There's no room for self-righteousness and needing a savior. They can't coexist. So like the Pharisees, when we look to earn our salvation rather than trusting in Jesus and his new way, a savior for sinners. We ultimately add to and take from the word of God. We condemn others based upon our own standards. And listen, what Jesus is showing is very simple that this will not lead to salvation. So we must choose. We must choose an attempt at self righteousness or embracing a savior. So in our final section here, Jesus is going to lead us there to the answer of trusting in him rather than self righteousness. The first thing that we saw in our passage was the action. The second thing that we see in our passage is the accusation. And lastly, what we see in our passage is Jesus' answer. We see the answer. Now, I love this, don't you, when Jesus answers stuff? Like when they start to ask questions and they start to say, like, here's probably how he's going to respond. We're going to catch him this way and that. Jesus starts talking crazy stuff. that They don't even know what he's saying, right? But he's speaking divine truth and revelation that's cutting through everything that they understood so Jesus answers here verse three he says when they ask what are you doing why have you not kept this he answers he says have you not read you who know the law so well right like you who are so familiar with the scriptures have you not read what David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him and I love this because just as Jesus combats Satan with the scriptures as Satan was using the scriptures to coerce, try to coerce Jesus with his own agenda, so Jesus is using the scriptures to combat the Pharisees. So Pharisees and Satan are like in the same bag over here. Right, this is how bad this is. Now verse four, he entered, uh, this is what Jesus said, how he entered the house of God, you can see it, verse four, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, For any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Right? What an answer that you probably don't understand, right? But what Jesus is saying here, and I'm gonna explain to you, is saying, I'm the new way, I'm not like you, I'm gonna smash Judaism, self righteousness, I'm ushering in mercy, I'm the one to be trusted in salvation, not the law, not the Sabbath. And at first glance, this makes no sense, but let me show you how profound Jesus' answer is, right? He's referring to a couple of things. First, the great story in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. This is the entirety of it. I'm just going to show it to you. Here's what he's saying. Then David came to Nob and Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? This is, David wasn't king yet, okay? He's on his way running from Saul, right? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, "'The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, "'Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you "'and with which I have charged you. "'I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. "'And now then, what do you have on hand?' Give me five loaves of bread, David asked, or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us all, as always, when I go on an expedition, and the vessels that the young men are, um and, and the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is ordinary when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessel be holy? So the priest, here's what he did: he gave them the holy bread, for the, there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord to be placed on the and replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken. So listen, this is complex, but it's simple. Once you understand it, here's what he's saying. The significance is this. When David and his comrades were hungry, when they were running from Saul, they ate the shoe bread of the tabernacle, otherwise known as the bread of the presence, which represented the presence of God. Every Sabbath morning, there was 12 loaves laid before God and there was a loaf for every tribe of Israel. And the bread stood for the very presence of God and none but the high priest might eat of this. Leviticus 24, five through nine says this. Look, you shall take the fine flour, bake 12 loaves from it, two tenths of an eve, Shall be in each loaf. You shall set, uh, set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, it, um, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is so these are this is weak old bread, right? It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever and listen, here's the rule. Ready? It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a whole holy place, since it is for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food and offering a perpetual due. Listen, here's what's happening. He's allowed to eat the bread even though the bread shouldn't be eaten. This bread is special holy bread representing the presence of the Lord among God's people. And in this story, what the Pharisees knew was the story, but it's unlikely that they knew how to interpret it. Even though Jesus is telling them this story and referring back to it, They likely didn't understand it because they didn't approach the Scriptures with an open mind. They approached the Scriptures through the eyes of their regulations. They didn't approach the Scriptures with a need for mercy. They approached the Scriptures as judges over the Scriptures. So, when he says this, what Jesus is showing is that even though this was not permissible, David was permitted to eat. Because he was in need. And so in this story, David eats the old bread, right? More like crackers in case you're wondering how he stomached it. And what Jesus is saying is that David's need had taken precedence over the rules and the regulations. And this is what I am doing as well. So here against your accusation of not keeping the Sabbath, Jesus' profound Kind of complex, but also simple answer is referring to the Pharisees and telling the Pharisees that just as David's needs took precedence over the rules and the regulations, so the needs of the world are taking precedence over your rules and regulations. Jesus is saying, I have come to show mercy and compassion. This is the new way. It's not about self-righteousness. It's about the human need that there is sin, that sinners need to be saved for the presence of God, that it is far more important in the eyes of God than keeping the law and the regulation for him to come and to save a lost people. He is undermining Judaism, self-righteousness, and keeping the rules. This is all about their hypocritical external religion, and he is saying, I'm bringing a new garment, a new wine, mercy, salvation for sinners, forgiveness, and this is what he is calling them to. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse seven. He says this, if you knew what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so what Jesus is referring to is that he has come to bring mercy and not law. And church, all of this, one main point for us to see is that Jesus' new way calls us into a way of trusting in him for salvation. He is the son of God. He has come to save sinners. He has come to obliterate self-righteousness and trusting in self and rules and regulations for salvation. And he has come to bring mercy and compassion through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so just as he's forcing them to choose, he's forcing us to choose. And although this is hard to swallow and hard to stomach, I want to encourage you to choose. Will you trust in Jesus Christ As the Savior, his new way for salvation. Will you trust in Jesus wholly? Will you wholly lean upon Jesus and what he has come to do to make you in right standing with God? Will you live like that as a Christian? Every day waking up trusting in the merit of his son completely. Or... Will you live and trust that your good works will outweigh your bad and keeping rules and regulations will make you in right standing before God? Listen, this is tough to swallow, but let me encourage you, your eternity rests upon it. And so I pray that today, you would our kids are having fun. I pray, they lighten the mood, that you would trust in Jesus, that you would see his new way, and that you would do away with all of your rule keeping. Listen, it's oppressive and it's slavery. And it won't make you right before God. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus. He's Come to bring a new way. To die for your sins. It won't cost you anything. You would receive salvation in his name. Let's pray. Father, we come upon this text and we see such complexity in it. But God, such simplicity in its main point. And I pray, Lord, that as we see this text, that we would have just everybody in this room today wholly lean upon you, Jesus. That we wouldn't think, no matter how we grew up, no matter who taught us what, no matter how many people have told us how to be in right standing with you, God, and and that our good works might outweigh our bad works. I pray that everyone in this room would do away with it. That would be the win today. That everybody in this room would do away with trusting in their works, trusting in self-righteousness, trusting in a way to earn their salvation, that they would do away with it and they would trust completely in you, Jesus. In your new way, that you have come to call us into a salvation through you and what you've aimed to do for sinners, which is show forgiveness through your work. This is the new way. God, I pray that anybody in this room who doesn't know you would trust in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins and be saved. I pray that the people in this room who do know you, who live for you, but are living under the oppression and the slavery of living every day like it depends on them to maintain right standing with you. I pray that you would do away with it. I pray that we'd be free from that self-righteousness, works-based religion, and God, that we would turn into the true gospel and live like that, trusting in you. God, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to save sinners, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.